As it progresses, the book of Deuteronomy appears at surface level to be a simple account of the Jews' history, recounting the events that brought them to the banks of the River Jordan at Beth Peor. However, the Deuteronomist appears blissfully unaware that much of this content has already been written, and that the original account differs to this one. By blindly telling it as he sees it, the writer is unwittingly creating all manner of problems for future theologians, who must now try and find workarounds as to how there are some strikingly different accounts of the same events. These discrepancies invite all manner of jibes from atheists, whose angle is that if one bit of the Bible is contradictory, then the entire book is invalid. Yet, many deeply religious people accept that the Bible's inconsistencies as a whole aren't enough to sink the ship, however much atheists accuse them of being hypocrites and cherry-picking which parts of the Bible they want to believe. The book of Deuteronomy doesn't promise any high-octane action sequences. As its Greek name suggests, this is the second law-giving. The first was 40 years earlier to a generation now deceased. These people's children have now taken on the mantle of responsibility that will see them attempt to enter the promised land of Canaan. Forewarned is forearmed, and Moses' briefing is far from over. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 46, Smashed and Burned. Look at us skid-panning through the book of Deuteronomy. No one knows we're here and no one cares. This is one of the Bible's most unread books, so we pretty much have it to ourselves. I'm your tour guide, and if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that I'm an advertising creative director, not a trained theologian. Everything you've heard from me, I've either heard it from someone else, read it, or made it up. My belief is that the Bible is for everyone, not just religious people. So if you're interested in the book that has arguably influenced life on Earth more than any other, hop aboard. Okay, time for me to hand the mic back to Moses. At this point in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses decides to enlighten his people as to exactly who it is that has brought them safely to the gates of Canaan. As regulars to this podcast know, the accounts in Deuteronomy frequently differ to those in the other books that chart the Israelites' journey through the desert. Here, Moses remembers being told by God on Mount Sinai to chisel out two stone tablets to bring up the mountain, as well as a wooden box to keep them in. In the book of Exodus, no box is brought up the mountain. The Ark of the Covenant, the ornate wooden and gold chest used to store the stone tablets, has yet to be manufactured. Standing at Beth Peor at the gates of the Promised Land, Moses remembers how he personally chiselled out two stone tablets, taking them up the mountain where God rewrote the Ten Commandments onto them. Moses claims that he then brought the tablets back down, placing them in a box which he had built himself. Moses may well have done this. It certainly doesn't help his case to bend the truth, but it might also be the case that the writer of the book of Deuteronomy hasn't read the book of Exodus, and so his account originates from a slightly different oral tradition. The narrative is then interrupted by what appears to be an out-of-context editorial note inserted at a later date. Readers are told of the location of Aaron's death and his succession by his son Eleazar, an event which happens some 38 years later. The note adds that when the Israelite caravan Sarai reached the no longer existent dot on the map that is Jot Batha, 
a place that is barely name-checked in the Exodus account, the tribe of Levi was set aside to minister as priests. Why this desert locale is chosen from the other 42 featured in the same list is unclear, especially as, if the book of Leviticus is to be believed, the command to enlist the Levites as priestly helpers was given to Moses outside the tabernacle at the foot of Mount Sinai. Readers are reminded that the Levites were set aside from their fellow Israelite tribes to carry the ark, help at the tabernacle and pass on God's blessings to his people, a tradition that is clearly still in place at the time that the note is inserted. Readers are told that this is why the Levites own no land. Instead, they receive a share in the sacrifices offered at the tabernacle in perpetuity, which is referred to as their inheritance. The Israelites waiting at the border of Canaan are then told how it was Moses' intervention that spared them. Bible purists have tied themselves in knots trying to figure out whether this is a separate act of diplomacy or the same one, who is speaking, or when this information was added to the book. As with many of the Bible's mysteries, the answer may never be known. Whatever the origin, the narrative continues with God taking Moses' advice not to destroy his people, then commanding Moses to lead them on into the land he promised their ancestors that he would provide for them. Moses is very clear about what God wants. He expects his people to love him and serve him with every fibre of their being and to follow all his rules and regulations as they are there to protect and help them. To impress upon the crowd of Israelites how immense it is to be on God's radar, he points out that God created the heavens, the earth and everything in it, yet personally chose their ancestors to be his favourites. Moses orders his people to circumcise their hearts, a suggestion that it's not enough to display the physical signs of holiness, holiness needs to be on the inside too. It's time to stop trying to go their own way like stubborn farm animals, he says, before launching into one of the Bible's most beautiful eulogies about God. He is the God of gods, Lord of lords. He is great. He is mighty. He is awesome. He is utterly impartial and impossible to bribe. He defends the fatherless and widows who have no one to fight for them. He loves and accepts the non-Jews who live among them and provides them with food and clothing, reminding the Israelites that they were once foreigners in Egypt. It's quite a resume and is held up by Moses as an example of how God expects his people to behave too. They must fear God in the sense of remaining in awe of him. They must serve him, cling on to him and honour him in any promises they make to others. God should be praised, Moses says, pointing out that 70 people went down to Egypt and in the intervening centuries have become as numerous as stars in the sky. Being as numerous as stars in the sky is clearly a metaphor in these early books of the Bible. There are believed to be around two trillion galaxies in the universe, each holding millions of stars, which, even to the most unscientific brain, is a lot more stars than people. Moses impresses upon the people the importance of loving God and living according to his laws, but also the importance of knowing where they have come from and how they have arrived where they are today. 
The Israelites who experienced the Red Sea crossing were only children at the time. Remember, all the adults who left Egypt other than Moses, Joshua and Caleb have now died. Moses explains that these people's children weren't present at the seminal moments of the journey out of the Ramses brickyards, which is why it is so important that they hear how God rescued them, how they witnessed his power, the miracles he performed in the desert and the sheer godlike way he behaved. They need to hear how he rained down plagues on Egypt and swamped the Egyptian chariots as they attempted to pursue the Israelite refugees across the Red Sea. Their children did not see the rebels led by Korah try and usurp Moses and Aaron, only to be swallowed by the earth. The people need strength to take over the land of Canaan from the current inhabitants, and Moses promises them that by observing God's rules, they will have all the tools they need to settle down and live long and prosperous lives. The land of milk and honey promised to them by God is nothing like Egypt, he says. There, they needed to plant by hand and irrigate by foot, possibly a reference to treadmill-operated wheels used to carry water from the river to the fields above. Canaan is a walk in the park compared to this. It is a land of mountains and valleys that, quote, drinks rain from heaven. God watches over it all year round like an attentive gardener, Moses tells them, and the prize for obeying God and loving and serving him with their hearts and souls is well-irrigated farmland, harvests of wine, oil and corn, and lush grasslands for cattle. Moses reiterates the need to remain faithful to God and not to dabble with other people's religions, as this will only bring about drought, crop failure and ruin. Their side of the bargain is to put their complete focus on God. They are to tie Moses' words to their hands and wear them on their foreheads, teach them to their children at home, on the road, at bedtime and when they wake up. They are to nail them to their doorposts and on their gates. Do this and they will thrive as long as there is sky above the earth, he tells them. The thinking behind writing on hands is that they are almost always in view, as is anything projecting from a forehead. It's debatable whether Moses seriously expects his people to follow through on the detail of this, and the manufacture of phylacteries or mezuzot is not included in the list of laws recorded as being given to Moses by God. If they continue to keep God central to their lives, Moses tells his audience, he will drive out enemy nations from the land that they are about to enter, even those that are larger and physically stronger. From the southern desert to Lebanon in the north, and from the river Euphrates in the east and the Mediterranean in the west, everywhere they set foot will be theirs. No other nations will be able to withstand them, and these kingdoms will be terrified of Israel, Moses tells them. For him, it's very simple. Israel's actions will either earn God's blessing or his curse. If the people follow God, they will be blessed, but if they turn away and flirt with new gods with whom they currently have no relationship, they can consider themselves cursed. To reiterate this, they are to climb Mount Gerizim when they cross the border into Canaan. Here, they must recite all the good that will come from remaining loyal to God, the blessings. Then, they must climb nearby Mount Ebal and recite what will happen to them if they abandon God, the curses. To be helpful, Moses offers directions to both mountains, as he won't be around to lead them. 
For the record, these are to be found across the Jordan, westward towards the setting sun, near the great trees of Moreh, in the vicinity of those Canaanites living in the Arabah, in the vicinity of Gilgal. The kind of description that might have inspired Tolkien while writing The Lord of the Rings. Incidentally, Samaritans believe that Mount Gerizim is where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac, and they eventually build a rival to Jerusalem's temple here. In the Bible, God has no time for any other religion, period. As such, the Israelites are instructed to utterly destroy any pagan worship site they encounter in their new land. These tend to be on the summits of mountains and other high places, as well as under large trees, which are seen as sacred. Altars and ceremonial stones are to be smashed. Wooden poles used to worship the fertility goddess Asherah are to be burned. Statues of gods are to be cut down, and the names of these places changed to wipe any trace of pagan worship from the map. Asherah is seen as the Canaanite mother of the gods. Around 70 other deities are recorded as being her offspring, hence the cult of fertility that grows up around her. Under no circumstances are the Israelites to worship God like Canaan's current tenants worship their gods. Instead, they are to look to the place in the new nation of Israel where God chooses to locate his worship site. Here, they are to bring their burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes and other special gifts. They should bring to God anything they have vowed to hand over, their free will offerings and the first animals to be born to their flocks. The book of Leviticus goes into granular detail as to exactly what these offerings and sacrifices are, when they should be made and what form they should take. Here, Moses tells his people that they and their families can eat in God's presence and be thankful for everything that God has provided them with. What he means is the food which they bring to the tabernacle to sacrifice. After the priests have burned the requisite parts and taken their own share, the people making the sacrifice can enjoy whatever is left. At the moment, it appears that the Israelite sacrifices are a bit of a free-for-all, with everyone doing their own thing, and Moses shares his plan for the way ahead. Once God has helped them conquer their enemies and things have settled down, the people should follow Moses' instructions to bring their sacrifices, tithes and other gifts to the designated temple site. This is the place where they, their children, their servants and the Levites who live among them should come and demonstrate to God how joyful they are at what he has done for them. This will also be the only bona fide sacrifice site in Israel and the people must be sure not to kill and burn their offerings wherever they feel like it. Moses then scoots through some rules about food. The people can slaughter their own animals for food, but must be careful to drain away the blood before eating the meat. They mustn't eat any of the food set aside for their tithe or any other offering, as this must be enjoyed at the tabernacle with family, servants and the Levite workers. Conscious that the Levites own nothing, Moses reminds his people to look out for their priestly brothers. Any Israelite who has a longing for meat can kill and cook up one of their animals wherever they live. Moses clearly assumes that his listeners know all about the rules for how sacrifices work, and also what makes a person clean and unclean, as people in both categories are allowed at these far-flung barbecues. They just need to be sure that they drain out the animal's blood like water in the ground before they tuck in. 
Doing God's will should act as insurance against bad things happening to their children, Moses tells them. The ominous undertone being that the opposite will be true if they decide to take his rules with a pinch of salt. There is no excuse for not attending the tabernacle to make sacrifices, he says. Nowhere in Israel will be that far from its centre of worship, and those furthest away are still expected to make the journey. Moses adds that putting God front and centre of their lives sets his listeners up for success, promising that it will, quote, always go well for you and your family. The Israelites' leader promises again that God will clear a path for them to settle Canaan and reiterates that when they are there, they are to show zero curiosity about other local religions, let alone join in with them. Pagan faiths are detestable to God, Moses says, not least because they involve the sacrifice of children on bonfires. Any homegrown prophet who encourages the people to follow pagan gods should be ignored. This is a test from God, Moses tells his audience. God wants to check if his people are truly following him with all their heart and soul. God alone should be followed, and the errant prophet must be charged with inciting rebellion and then killed, something which Moses calls purging the evil from among you. In fact, the people are told that if a loved one or close family member tries to entice them away for a spot of pagan worship, they are to stone them to death without pity. Not only that, they should be the ones to throw the first stone. This may seem unduly harsh, but turning away from God amounts to full-scale insurrection and cannot be tolerated if Israel is to survive as a nation. Any Israelite town where those who Moses refers to as troublemakers lead the people away from God worship must be thoroughly investigated. If it turns out that God really has been abandoned here, the town's people and livestock are to be killed and everything of value is to be heaped in the middle of the public square and burned as an offering to God. That town must never be rebuilt. As long as none of the valuables escape the fire and find their way into the hands of other Israelites, God's anger will abate, Moses tells his listeners. He will reward his people's loyalty and they will thrive in the land promised to their ancestors. God, it appears, is extremely jealous. He expects the people who he rescued from Egypt to place their hope in his hands. The warnings for what will happen to them if they don't do this are dire, leading to many modern-day readers rejecting the Bible outright. After all, why would anyone follow a God like that? But again, is not liking the Bible a reason to reject it? Most people don't like tax or earthquakes or pandemics, but they grudgingly acknowledge their power. These are tough chapters for believers and non-believers alike and seem a quantum leap from the more touchy-feely, life-affirming books of the New Testament. But hey, it takes many books to make a Bible. 66 in fact, and we're still only on book five. The adventure has barely started. is written and produced by me Chas Bayfield with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please feel free to send any comments to contact at holybible.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. Easier to spell than say Holy Bible really does sound like Holy Bible. My bad. 
Oh, and if you like what you hear, why not give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening? Thanks. Thanks.